Hello and welcome to another edition of the Federal's Files. Today we're going to be going over Federal's number 8, uh, titled The Consequences of Hostilities Between the States, written by Alexander Hamilton, uh, written on November 20th, 1787. Uh, topics include introduction of military establishments, uh, power of people above the military is another topic that's in this one here. Uh, Hamilton begins this paper by stating, and I quote, The discipline armies always kept on foot on the continent of Europe, though they bear a malignant aspect to liberty and economy, have notwithstanding been productive of the signal advantage of rendering sudden con conquests impracticable and of preventing that rapid desolation which used to mark the progress of war prior to their introduction, end quote. Really, th this entire paper here, in general, is about military establishments, how there is actual a need for that military establishment for national security purposes, but that military establishment won't be at the expense of the people. The people will still hold the power over that military establishment in terms of actual, um, you know, obviously the citizenry will have to be part of the military, so that's part of the reason why they will somewhat hold some sort of power over it. As well as, you know, elected officials are supposed to be of the people. They're supposed to be representative of the people. So, in theory, the people are supposed to also have power over that military. But in the case where they, they don't, let's say the executive, the executive magistrate or the president decides to take power over that, those military uh, establishments and try to uh, oppress the people... He, he wants to ensure, Hamilton wants to ensure that the military will be... Uh, a strong and powerful one, but it still won't be strong and powerful enough to take out the people. So that's another uh, Second Amendment issue. That's something, I mean, this, this paper isn't exactly aimed towards that, but it does infer it. There's assumptions that could be made from uh, a lot of the things that are written in this paper, and you'll see there's going to be a lot of quotes where th that uh, infer that the people should still have the power over the military, that they're going to be stronger than the military. And for anybody that doesn't know, all that it took during the Revolutionary War, there's that, that saying, the three percenters now, it's kind of framed. The left kind of uses the three percenter phrase to frame it, frame it as white supremacists. The, the three percenters are really just people that are willing, if the government becomes oppressive and tyrannical, to really uh, take up arms against the government in the... Um, if the government does not do what they're supposed to be doing. It's people that are willing to fight for their rights, fight for the rights of other citizens. And it only took that, th the point they call them the 3% is it only took, apparently, only 3% of the people actually took up arms against the British. And then there was other percentages, like, you know, apparently it was something like 3% took up arms. Then it was something like 25%, uh, you know, didn't agree with the British and they were against them, and then there was like, you know, such as maybe 10% that were loyalists, there, there's all different percentages that they, that they, uh, they've inferred, or rather they've, uh, estimated, you know, because at that time you don't exactly know, but really he's just saying here that the continent of Europe, in some, in some European countries, it was actually malignant to the aspect of liberty to have standing militaries but certain ones have taken advantage of those standing militaries and they've used it to their satisfaction and to actually ensure liberty so there are advantages to that it's not completely impracticable 
but there were certain countries like, uh, you know, Rome, like Roman, ancient Rome, that took the military and put it above the citizen and pretty much took civil liberties away. And the reason in which they did that will uh, get into, Hamilton's going to get into it as there's so many enemies for ancient Rome at that time that you needed a bit, they felt that they needed a bigger military establishment and the larger and larger the military establishment gets, it's at the, uh, it's at the beginning of the, the people, the people end up getting, getting put in jeopardy, they get jeopardized. Now, he continues, as I said, with the history of the European style of wars and innovation of multiple, oh, this is a very interesting aspect here, European style wars and the innovation of multiple garrisons so that the invaded country can gain intelligence of the breach. So, you know what, I'm going to quote him. He elaborates on this uh, point here, and I quote, The history of war in that quarter of the globe is no longer a history of nations subdued and empires overturned, but of towns taken and retaken, of battles that decide nothing, of retreats more beneficial than victories, of much effort and little acquisition. End quote. So what he's saying here is, years ago what used to happen is, you would have your military establishment would be inside of you know your uh, your city and you'd have or your your country or your capital and you would have your entire military standing at the gates ready to fight and you would you would fight off whoever was coming and attacking your uh, your establishment whether it was a capital or it was a city or it was a country generally your military was maintained in one spot. It was very, very uh, single. It was not like multiple military forces in multiple uh, locations. It was very centralized, the powers of your military. What he's saying is because of multiple innovations, they call them garrisons. Garrisons are almost like uh, camps for troops. They set up multiple camps now. So that when European style of war happens, when they're when they're at war, you you can lose multiple battles, but you may not lose really any any major war because you'll be able to retreat instead of losing it all. It's almost like uh, when you're playing at a poker table and you decide to call instead of going all in, and then when your your uh, your foe goes all in, you decide to fold to fight another day if you know your your hand isn't good. That's really what now at this point of time in the uh, 1780s that's how they revolutionized uh, European style wars and he's just he's just uh, you know claiming that and he's you know he's going to use this in the future to say how the military establishment in the United States should be set up and uh, he feared that under the current system and the jealousies of military establishments it would be opposite that the populous states and I quote the populous states would with little difficulty overrun their less populous neighbors, end quote. So that was another worry that he had. He really, the worry was is that there would be a military for each and every confederacy. So every single, you know, uh, the state, the 13 states would all have their own military. And then in doing so, there there may be some, you know, uh, larger, more populous states that would take over the smaller ones, like a New York would take over New Jersey, something of that nature. And the the fears of having those those separate uh, those separate militaries would cause more war. And in doing so, having those separate militaries, like I like like I said earlier, it ends up uh, the people yearn for peace and safety, 
once there's wars constantly going on, thus they're much more willing to give up essential liberties. It's actually something that's very, uh, you know, relative to today. Currently, I mean, everyone's wearing a mask. Uh, they're talking about New York, like I said earlier in another episode. They are talking about ending dinners early. Uh, restaurants are not able to be open after 10 p.m. Uh, more and more people are, are willing to give up essential liberties and freedoms, being told to put a piece of cloth over their face by by a governor through an executive order, which he really does not have the power to even do. It's not something that should be considered constitutional. The court system should be shooting them down, but they're not. Uh, so we have, currently we think that this this mask is the end-all, be-all, so we're willing to, you know, give up liberty. We're willing to allow politicians, and not only politicians, but bureaucrats, people that aren't even elected, like a guy like Dr. Fauci, we're allowing them, or the uh, CDC or the WHO, we're allowing them to make decisions for us and tell us what we're allowed to wear every day. It's very, very uh, concerning. And, you know, if you actually go online and you read the effectiveness, the efficacy of these masks, it's not a high percentage. Some of them are not effective at all. They're The only thing that they're guaranteed effective against is, is blocking droplets, aerosols, they're not because aerosols, with the exception of the N95 mask, that is the only one through clinical trials that has been found to actually be effective at blocking aerosols at about a 95% rate. Now, aerosols are generally measured in nanometers, so the best way to explain it is they are, those aerosols are so small that it's like putting up a chain link fence in your backyard in order to stop mosquitoes from getting into your backyard. So, essentially, these masks, the only thing that they are blocking is droplets. So, when you talk, if you are spitting when you talk, that's the only thing that's being blocked by these masks. They're blocking uh, your spit from coming out of your mouth and maybe uh, onto somebody else. Or, you know, blocking other people's spit from hitting you in your mouth. Essentially, uh, that is all that is really being done by these, by these masks of all sorts, whether they are... Uh, even the operation masks or surgical masks, the only ones that are actually proven to be effective blocking uh, aerosols are the N95 masks. So it goes to show that I'm, I'm telling you right now, you cannot find me a empirical study with empirical data and evidence that shows that these other masks are effective. Now, whether they're, you know, 1% effective or they're, they're not effective the end you cannot find one especially you really really can't find an argument in favor of wearing masks outside in the open air that's another one that you will not be able to find any study on so these are arbitrary measures that have been taken by bureaucrats as well as some of our elected officials in a guise to protect you the citizen when really what they're doing is they're just doing it to cover themselves. And you can tell that they actually don't believe in a lot of this stuff with you have Nancy Pelosi, you have uh, Chuck Schumer, these people that go out. I mean, Nancy Pelosi went to a uh, to go get her hair done. She took the mask off. She doesn't care. She's walking around. She's 80 years old. So she must know something other people uh, must not know. She must know that she has there is some sort of treatment that she knows is very highly effective. 
but she won't admit that it is very highly effective because she's not worried for her life at all. She also has the money to uh, afford any doctor she really needs. That's another reason she's probably not too worried about it. But she knows that it's actually not as deadly as the media is making it out to be, the coronavirus, and that's the reason in which you know, she does not take any of these precautionary measures seriously. It's the same thing. It really does speak as a, almost a consensus across the board for a lot of politicians. And I'm not even, I'm not even going to, I would say Republicans as well, but Republicans are not the ones pushing and trying to make people feel bad. It's, it's very odd what's going on. It's almost, they are trying to shame you for wanting liberty. They, they are calling you selfish for the idea of freedom. It's very concerning. And that's, that's really the appeal to emotion that they use, that the mainstream media uses in a lot of different uh, constitutional freedoms that we have, like the Second Amendment, where they'll show a guy that's just totally lost it, and he is, you know, sawing off his rifle and saying, I'm going to destroy this rifle so no one can ever use it again. And then he's actually making it an illegal weapon by doing so. When you cut your, your barrel to a really short piece, you now make it an illegal weapon. And you also make it a totally, a very dangerous weapon. Because if you end up, let's say, um, let's say you chop that rifle, that rifle barrel off. That can affect the trajectory of your bullet is no longer as safe as a, of a weapon as it was before. And then on top of that, if you do the classic, uh, the classic Bugs Bunny to the Elmer Fudd where he turns the shotgun back at him. You do one of those and you think, oh, this can't be used. Oh, no, that's not the way it works. It ends up blowing up on itself and it could be a serious uh, safety hazard. So if you want to get rid of your rifle, just go to like the nearby police department and they'll trash it for you. You don't need to make a spectacle to everybody on social media and do your own, you know, gunsmithing. Uh, for the most part, but that's what that's what the mainstream media uh, tries to do to people. They try to make them feel terrible. They come out with these, you know, people come out with these memes, and and there's a lot of meme culture going on on social media instead of a lot of reading going on. It seems like there's really no reading of statistics or empirical empirical data analysis. It's just it's just a bunch of garbage. Everybody's just retweeting and uh, sharing everybody else's posts. Like I said before, it's an echo chamber reverberation. Everyone is just repeating everything that everybody else says. And there's a lot of conservatives that have got off Facebook, got off Twitter, got off, went to Parler or, or what have you. And, and my response to that is I say you need to stay on the – and I wasn't even a guy that was on these platforms until I started this podcast just to try to advertise as much as I can. I'm not really a huge fan of going on these platforms because I do think that it was probably the most – the fakest environment, the most superficial you can find in our in our daily uh, interactions for sure i mean i go to work and it's just such a different interaction with people than it is you know going on facebook where everyone's loving each other when i went when i was it's funny because when i was in high school and there was facebook everyone used to fight each other on there and the same thing with twitter everyone used to constantly fight twitter it's kind of still the same but no one's really on twitter at all but facebook's just like a giant love hug hug fest it's very it's very peculiar it's very uh, perplexing it's it's weird I don't really get it. I think it's it's very superficial. It's fake. I only like things that I actually like when I like them on Facebook. I got off Facebook originally because I thought there should have been a dislike button, but they still have yet to install it. Uh, but that's what they do, you know. They they try to they try to make you feel terrible about yourself, and in doing so, you know that'll cancel your behavior. They try to put out this this story like hey this is the consensus this is how everyone feels and everyone thinks so this is how you should think 
just like when they came out with the poll numbers, and the poll numbers were so substantially off. They had Trump losing by such a wide margin. It wasn't even supposed to be close. You know what I mean? And even now, they're still counting votes. They're doing all these different things. There's so much litigation going on. We still don't know the results of the election. People are still making it like uh, they know. You know, there's been a complete suppression by the, the media as well as Fox News. If anybody, anyone that would rip Fox News all the time, they really have no idea what they're talking about. Fox News is super left-wing. They've been left-wing for a while. I've been noticing it for probably the last two, three years now at this point. The only people that aren't is you got you got Hannity on there. It's all the opinion people late at night, Hannity, Ingram, as well as uh, Tucker Carlson. And then I think of Jesse Waters on the weekends. He's a little bit more right wing. Uh, that guy, Greg Guffeld, but he's like, you know, he's, he's the comedy guy. He's the joker of the group. But a lot of these people are, are very left wing on that on, on Fox News to make it like they're the right wing source. And they're, you know, the evil that everybody sees. They're, they're definitely not. They're on your side. They're on the left wing. They just act like they're on the right wing. But you could tell by the elation from them when they when CNN declared that uh, anointed Joe Biden as the president, they came out literally like two minutes later and they made their own headline in agreeance. So, and and also today, uh, Trump tweeted something like, I remember what he said, something like, "Oh, Joe Biden won because he cheated." Whatever, you know, that's that's what Trump says. Joe Biden won because he cheated. So then Fox News comes out with with a headline, oh, Trump concedes the election for the first time on on, on Instagram or uh, on Twitter. So who who really, I mean, who's running Fox News? Let's be honest here. These are the Murdochs. They're left-wingers. They're not right-wing anymore. You know, the, the original owner, I think it was Robert Ayers, they were much more right-leaning than uh, these new people that are owning the company. So, you know, they're they're really full of it. Anyone that thinks Fox News is right leaning, what you got to do is you got to go watch One American News or you got to watch Newsmax. Those are the real right, uh, the real right leaning shows to uh, to watch if you're interested in seeing opposing views or the other side. And then if you really want to have a heart attack, you know, you can go watch those too because you'll freak out when you see those. If you thought that Fox News was bad, so <clears throat> I'm going to continue here. Hamilton states the violent destruction, and I quote, the violent destruction of life and property incident to war, the continual effort and alarm attendant on a state of continual danger will compel nations the most attached liberty to resort for repose and security to institutions which have a tendency to destroy their civil and political rights to be more safe. They at length become willing to run the risk of being less free, end quote. That's exactly what I was saying before. People are more willing to give up their liberty and their freedom just to have a little bit of uh, safety. Like I said with this whole coronavirus thing, that's how it's kind of relatable to today. And you'll always find that throughout you know, human history and human nature. A lot of people kind of just want to live their life uh, you know, and be, and be safe. A lot of family men, family women, people that you know, have families just want to live their life safely and some people are willing to give up a lot of those essential liberties in order to have a temporary safety and in doing so you'll end up having none at the end of the day that's what will end up happening to you and uh, the executive branches of these separate confederacies will end up gaining more power in order to uh, fortify the military especially in the smaller states which is something that hamilton feared and he states uh and i quote they referring to smaller states would at the same time be necessitated to strengthen the executive arm of government, in doing which their constitutions would acquire a progressive direction toward monarchy, end quote. 
So what he's saying here is the smaller states, because they are uh, fearful, because they are smaller in population, they're fearful of these bigger states that will have more resources as well as more men to fight, because men was really... Uh, was huge because in general there really wasn't that much innovation there was a lot of the same weaponry going on so men was really your best your best factor or your your best uh, advantage to have in war was the amount of men that you held now he recognizes this this move to an authoritarian regime if you uh, are willing to give up those liberties for temporary safety and if you're willing to build up that military bigger and bigger in order to protect yourself. And he states, and I quote, it is of the nature of war to increase the executive at the expense of the legislative authority, end quote. So that's what he's saying. You're just going to, you're going to end up making that executive, that president, you're going to make them almost like a, a or if it's a, a state, it's a governor, you're going to make them almost like a monarchy because they're going to have to get more and more power. And when you give the executive more power, it's always at the expense of the two other branches. And that's going to be the legislative branch as well as the judicial, but the legislative much more than than the uh, judicial. And you'll see in the history of America when we came out with the executive order, the reason that we have executive orders were really to try to give the president a defense against the legislature because we fear that the legislature was too strong. And right now what's going on in our politics is the legislature is actually strong. Don't get me wrong, but they do not do anything. They're lazy. They wait around for the president to try to make moves. The president now is seen as an authoritarian head that really uh, is the enthusiasm of the party. They're the zealous part. They're the part that is the driving, the impetus, the driving force of the party negotiations. So when President Trump says, hey, we want to work out a deal, we tell Mitch McConnell, then Mitch McConnell starts going. They almost make it like, at this point, the president almost runs the Senate and also runs, you know, the House of Representatives, whoever his people on his side are. And then the other side's, you know, headed with fighting against. And their, their leaders are really whoever the Senate minority leader is and the representatives the uh, minority leader is. Like right now, for example, I think it's McCarthy. It's something like Kevin McCarthy in the uh, House of Reps for the Republicans. And then the Senate, the minority, is uh, Chuck Schumer. So they're the ones that kind of fight against any type of legislation that, you know, either side tries to put through. Because right now the uh, Senate is held by Republicans and the House of Reps is held by the Democrats. And he discerns here, Hamilton discerns that if the largest, less disciplined states lose to smaller more disciplined armies, the impetus for preeminence will cause these larger states to fortify their own military. So what he's saying is that a lot of these uh, these smaller states will actually be more compelled to have a much stronger military, a more disciplined military, better trained, just because they are afraid of those encroachments by larger states. And they may actually, small states might actually stand a chance against these larger states. But then the issue with that is you're going to see these larger states going and fortifying and jacking up their military. So in essence, uh, you will end up seeing just monarchies all over these these individual states. And he he has he states this here, and I quote, we should in a little time see established in every part of this country the same engine of despotism, which have been the scourge of the old world, end quote. So despotism is another word for like a, you know, a monarch, a complete power, somebody that, that seeks and greeds for, you know, complete and utter control and power. 
So you're going to see that complete and utter control and power and, you know, all these governors of these, these individual states because they're just going to keep fortifying their militaries. And then he, uh, then he confirms, and I quote, these are not vague inferences drawn from supposed or speculative defects in a constitution, the whole power of which is lodged in the hands of the people or their representatives and delegates, but they are solid conclusions drawn from the natural and necessary progress of human affairs, end quote. So he says this is pretty much a human nature thing. This is history. Uh, this has happened in Rome. He's, he talks about, he, he says that there has been an exaltation of standing militaries as there was in Rome throughout you know, history, and in doing so, this ends up strengthening up that uh, executive power. And he answers, because of innovation and new arts, such as the uh, industry science of finance and, you know, increase of gold and silver, that these have, uh, and I quote, produced an entire revolution in the system of war and have rendered disciplined armies distinct from the body of the citizens the inseparable companions of frequent hostilities, end quote. So he's pretty much saying that all these, uh, the the commercial gains that we've, we've found and the new innovations that we've found has caused these standing militaries, like really, really strong standing militaries. I'm not just talking about having a uh, standing military, like a Roman standing military become to be viewed as much more hostile to the citizenry because they do not need them. They, they feel like they can, you know, handle themselves. They feel like they're very self-reliant. It's just, it's an independence from government thing. Uh, more than anything, these people feel that they don't really need, they need these armies only if they're, you know, attacked by a foreign nation. But because of all these, these new revolutions in, uh, in finance and commerce, you know, gold and silver and industry, if you ever see Trump when he says industry, he'll be like, the industry? He says it with like three. He says it as if it's two words. He'll be like, are you going to destroy? He'll be like the Joe Biden. He'll be like, are you going to destroy our industry? He does it all the time. But I digress. <laughs> and Hamilton makes the argument for one national standing military uh, rather than Confederacy armies that would not be able to infringe on the rights of the people, but uh, powerful enough to suppress small insurrections. That's really all that you need that military for. And also because of the Second Amendment, you would have your own militias that of people. And when you mean militias, they can be organized. They can just be, you know, the, the blacksmith down the street, or they can, they can be just regular people that have normal jobs that are willing to take up arms against enemy enemy uh, encroachments or enemy attacks, foreign attacks. And, you know, he continues, and I quote, the smallness of the army renders the natural strength of the community an overmatch for it, and the citizens, not habituated to look up to the military power for protection or to submit to its oppressors, its oppressions, neither love nor fear the soldiery. They view them with a spirit of jealous acquiescence in a necessary evil and stand ready to resist a power which they suppose may be exerted to the prejudice of their rights. The army under such circumstances may usually or usefully aid the magistrate to suppress a small faction or an occasional mob or insurrection, but it will be unable to enforce encroachments against the united efforts of the great body of the people, end quote. So, Hamilton is making the argument in 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 essence 
for, you know, he wants a military that is, he wants a military establishment, he wants a standing military, but he wants a military that the people view as a necessary evil and is not going to encroach on the rights of the people and the people are going to be, if, if they do encroach on those rights, those people united can easily overthrow them or can easily uh, turn right around and flip them the double barrel middle finger and pretty much take them out with no issue or no problem. And uh, that's really what he's calling for. He's he's establishing that military, but he differentiates it from the tyrannical, these other tyrannical nations or these monarchical structures. And uh, he states, there is a wide difference also between military establishments in a country seldom exposed by its situation to internal invasions and in one which is often subject to them and always apprehensive of them, end quote. So that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying people that are worried about, you know, there, there's a difference between military establishments, like I said earlier, in, uh, in ancient Rome or France, where you were right next to other countries in Europe. And you have to actually worry about encroachments and attacks from foreign nations. Whereas in America, where you have, you know, you have the Pacific Ocean on the other side of you. And then you have the uh, Atlantic Ocean. More importantly, the Atlantic, because at that time we didn't own the western part of the country. But still, we had that that uh, Atlantic Ocean that protected us. We just fought that war with Britain. They pretty much just signed a treaty of peace. So the only people, and we also, that, that treaty of peace also, which I did not detail in the uh, last video it was a three it was three different treaties so it was like a series of treaties and it was between spain france and great britain was one of them and the other one was great britain and the united states and then the other one i think was great britain and i want to say like switzerland or because they had some sort of weird territory situation and uh like nova scotia or something like that but I think that might have been France or Great Britain or what what have you. But that's really what he's saying is that, uh, you know, America should not be, should not have a military. Like we're always apprehensive and we're worried about getting invaded. What we should have is we should have a military that's there. It's established. But it should be there to fight the initial, the initial response if we do get attacked. And we've never actually, like I've said before, the only attack that we've had on uh, United States land has been the revolution as well and we weren't even the united states at the time and or the civil war and that's really all we've ever had and that's like i said that's due to the two oceans that's due to a lot of things i think it's also due to an underlying you know right to bear arms no one's going to attack our country if they take some military out and then they decide to you know siege new jersey even though new jersey's gun ownership rate is around like 12 or 13 percent you got to think about the entire state i mean there's millions and millions of people living here and you're like okay well what's 12 percent of millions and millions of people because then we got to fight all them off at the exact same time i mean it's 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 a huge feat it's almost insurmountable to come in here and decide especially with small arms if you if it's it's a whole different story if you decide to you know like nuke us but it, it's it, which is very unlikely because we do have our own counter missiles that'll be able to uh intercept anything that's in the air but if you decide to do that whole red dawn thing and you send your own paratroopers over to even a state like new jersey forget it you're not going to go anywhere down south you're not touching tennessee you're not going to touch south carolina you're not touching florida you're not touching georgia you're not touch you're not touching any of these places even a place like vermont vermont is super pro gun over there even though they vote blue 
there's a lot of states that I think Maine as well. Maine votes blue, but they're super pro gun over there too. So what are you going to do? You're going to drop your guys right in our state here, and then you're going to have to fight off the entire citizenry. That's something that you know no one, no one that's against the Second Amendment even thinks about. That it's actually a national security issue in its own right because if anybody comes over there, unless if they decide to nuke us. I don't know how they're going to be able, like, you know, you can't have what happened when the German military walked into France or the German military walked into Poland. That's not going to happen. No military is going to walk into the United States and the people of America aren't just going to let them. We're not going to lay down and just let them smack us right in our mouth. That's not going to happen. There's going to be an answer for sure. Whether we win or lose, there will be an answer. So there's going to be a giant amount of loss on the other side from their country. Because people in this country, they're willing to die for freedom. They don't care. So that's 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 another thing that uh, no one really accounts for. The Second Amendment is also a national security issue. It also protects us in that way. So <clears throat> Hamilton continues to characterize these uh, these military establishments, saying that the stronger and the bigger they get, it is above. They become above the citizens. Uh, it causes an unavoidable, frequent infringement of uh, civil liberties. Uh, working as superiors rather than protectors at this point. Thus, the reasoning of his before-said premise that the large body of the people shall have power over the military. And uh, an example of this, he actually states here, and I quote, the continual necessity of their, meaning the military's uh, services, enhances the importance of the soldier and proportionably degrades the condition of the citizen. The military state becomes elevated above the civil the inhabitants of territories often the theater of war are unavoidably subjected to frequent infringements of their rights which serve to weaken their sense of those rights and by degrees the people are brought to consider the soldiery not only as their protectors but as their superiors end quote so that's really what he's saying is is the more and more the bigger and bigger that military establishment gets inside your country you're going to see these, you're going to take more and more of the civil liberties away from your civilians. And you're going to eventually, just like in ancient Roman times, if you were if you were a soldier in Caesar's army, you were like a big shot. You made it, you know. So the, the larger these military establishments get, the more and more civil rights uh, violations there will be. And the people eventually, eventually will not look at these people with reverence they will not look at them as their protectors but rather as their superiors as if you know they're like the, their king or something like that that's like i said that's why i don't like the idea of king as an established i don't believe that anyone's you know above me and somehow they're not human they're like a different breed and then uh, to end here like, like I, I mentioned before, uses the geographical location of Great Britain as an example because the strong navy of Great Britain doesn't have these uh, numerous military establishments like a lot of these other European countries just because they are technically like an island. They're in the mid middle of the ocean. And to get there is, is a, such a large, long distance from, uh, from France and other countries so they didn't really need to have a really strong military establishment troops on the ground inside of great britain and they also learned that's because of all the all the uh, infighting that happened during all the civil wars so they kind of learned their lesson with that because great britain has such a long history of that like i said it was uh, around the 1200s with william wallace 
up until, you know, at that point, that's 500 years. They were doing 500 years of infighting until they figured it out, really. And uh, they learned their lesson, like I said, and that's why he constantly, you know, points to Great Britain because they actually are similar to us in a lot of ways. It's kind of funny, though, because we just fought them to get them off our backs because they were the ones being oppressive and and it's funny because the the you know there were certain rules you know there was obviously first amendment rules you couldn't speak against the crown uh there was high taxes on there was the poll tax there was the which is just i think a tax for existing and then there was also a stamp tax so any newspaper you had they would hit the freedom of press pretty hard when they were making newspapers pay a really high stamp tax because they had to be stamped by the British government to allow it, I guess, to get to America or allow it to be in America, or else then it was illegal material, which is ridiculous. But and and then obviously you know the the Boston Tea Party because there was a tea tax, and I think the tea tax, from what I understand, the tea tax I think was a pretty high amount percentage wise. And um, yeah, so so he so Hamilton will he keeps using Great Britain as an example, and he's saying the Great Britain citizens, the citizens of uh, Great Britain are afforded much more civil liberties because they do have that small established military. And the reason they do is because they are that island. It's very difficult to get to them. They don't have to have that strong military because they have a very, very strong navy. So their army troops on the ground in Great Britain does not have to be numerous because their naval, you know, their naval structure was so strong that you, if, if something happened to their navy, on you know, if there was a country trying to, trying to take over and they were trying to attack uh great britain the navy would get the word back to them in time and then they'd be able to mobilize their troops so there wasn't a need for a very strong like standing military establishment because they would still have the time to be able to mobilize their troops and it's just and and this is what this is what hamilton says this is pretty much what you want this is his version of uh the best system is to have a small enough military just to mobilize the militias because of their own history of factions and monarchies they do not currently at this time hold a numerous military establishment that he's talking about great britain there but what i'm saying is is you want to you want a strong enough military establishment to stop people from um from invading other countries from invading but you don't want it to have such a large military establishment that it takes away the rights of the people and they commit civil liberty uh, violations and you want to be able to have that military so you you're able to mobilize your militia in time to really fight these uh these wars that could ensue but never really did and i mean these all credit to these guys because if you really look at where we are in our country in the um what 200 almost 250 years now and republics this is usually when they fall a lot of republics i think rome it seems like the more authoritarian they are actually the further the republic sometimes will go like rome did and then the less authoritarian if you just have like at this time what they had with the legislature essentially that made all the decisions with the articles of confederation you really just had a congress and those Congress, obviously, each uh, man that was there represented a collective state. But if that's all you have and you don't have anything other than that, usually republics do not last that long. But if you had, like they did in uh, Rome, where they had Julius Caesar, they had some strong, you know, uh, emperors or strong, strong kings. They lasted, I think, around 500 years because of it. And also just the magnitude, their size. They really had almost all of Europe taken over. 
So they did have a lot of power. I mean, Great Britain lasts. I mean, Great Britain's still around. If you think about it, Great Britain's lasted a really long time, but they're not like a republic like we are. But as I was saying, republics, usually this is their this is their shelf life. Right around this time, 200, 250 years is when they fall. So, you know, full credit to these to these uh, these patriots that John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, even Thomas Jefferson was kind of against the Federalist Papers. But a lot of these guys, a lot of our founders, they've really put this together quite well. Because if you look at the way, think about it, we haven't had any uh, wars in America. We've had, like I said, the Revolution and the uh, Civil War. And the where economy runs were the powerhouse of the world. So, there, I mean, there's a lot of, and a lot of the people here are afforded, written down, afforded on paper, they're afforded, you know, a lot more rights than other countries are, other citizens of other countries, but, you know, they're not given them <laughs> as much as they used to be given. We used to have, it seems like a lot of these, especially with this COVID lockdown badness that's going on, a lot of these uh, European countries that we always found to not be a beacon of freedom we always called them socialists because they are socialists in a lot of ways the way that they run their economy and obviously uh certain rights that they don't have like their first amendment they don't really have a first amendment in a lot of these uh, other countries there's certain things that are considered hate speech you can get locked up for and you can get fined for which in essence makes it not free speech oriented so a lot of these other countries, though, you've been seeing, they're actually not as authoritarian in their lockdowns. I think part of the reason is is because they actually can't afford to be authoritarian because they cannot afford to shut down their economies considering how much they're barely just hanging on now. Just like, I mean, Italy, for example. Italy's economy is known for not being that good. But here we can kind of afford to shut down the economy for a prolonged period of time. And we could still kind of bounce back just because we are the most prosperous. So maybe that's why there's been more violations. But there's definitely been an overreach from the government for sure. And uh, the people here have become very, very soft to it. They're not as uh, they're not as cogent. They're not as like forceful about about their rights being taken away from them. And it is very troubling and concerning. I think a lot of people because they are fat and happy. They have their technology they have their you know the ps5s coming out you got the new xbox coming out you got nice tvs you can get a 4k television for like 200 dollars a big one nowadays get a nice car you can get a nice subaru wrx you know all those things make people softer and softer to to authoritarians and same thing with for example, this free health care idea that's coming out of the government, government-paid health care, it always sounds good on paper, and then when you try to enact it, you see premiums go higher and higher. Like Obamacare, when it was enacted, if you haven't noticed in the last couple of years, our premiums have gotten higher and higher because we are paying for and we are making up for those people in our private insurance, for those people that are not paying because Obamacare is actually paying out. For example, if a surgery costs $1,000, Obamacare will pay them 800 bucks for that surgery. And us, we were getting charged, you know, if it cost $1,000, we were getting charged $1,200 to begin with because you have to pay the person also doing the work and there has to be some sort of profit incentive for the hospital that's doing that surgery for you. So let's say we're getting paid, you know, we're paying $1,200 through our insurance. Guess what? Because Obamacare, they're paying, we're making that extra $200 up. We're now paying $1,400. 
So that's what's happening actually currently. And that's why people have seen their premiums increase. And the issue is if you don't know that information, if you don't know that the payout and they the payout is less and the people subsidizing these people that are on Obamacare are private insurance uh, companies and private insurers, people that hold private insurance, you know, then you think, oh, wow, these premiums keep going up. You know what? I just like the idea of government health care. So actually, Obama, what Obama did with his Obamacare, and he probably knew this because Obama's actually a recorded commie. He was a, a communist when he was back in college. He was like part of all these weird communist groups. They just don't report it at all. And his actually, his initial strategy was he was thinking when he was in college from uh, accounts of people that no longer in the Communist Party and would hear things that he would say. He was very radical. He would talk about overthrowing the government, like by force. That's how he thought it had to be done, like instilling communism. But he must have realized all you got to do is you got to send that Trojan horse of Obamacare and actually created by Mitt Romney, by the way. Obamacare ran. Obama ran on Obamacare. And meanwhile, Mitt Romney was the one in Massachusetts that like created the Obamacare program in Massachusetts as the governor, which is very funny. And uh, but he used that Trojan horse. And now people are going, wow, man, my premiums are high. Maybe we should actually do this government health care plan. But they don't realize the only reason the premiums are high is actually because it's because of the initial Obamacare. If we didn't have that, and we had a much more free market system. And also, there's another issue during the uh the Bush administration, he enacted all these different laws that subsidized different, uh, different pharmaceuticals. And in doing so, they screwed with the prices and the measures. And it's a very subsidized system. Like the government owns 50% of the medicine. And in doing so, it screwed up the market value for everything. And that's why your prices are also high too, because there really isn't an innovation in those pharmaceutical drug companies. They, they don't want to innovate certain things because if you innovate... You, if you do end up having that innovation, you lower the price, but there's no incentive to doing it because the government owns 50% of the medicine. So there's no incentive. You're not making any type of profit off of it. So that's the whole point. But that's why this Obamacare structure has been, become like a Trojan horse. And it's going to end up being like a catalyst for a uh, government health care program system. And people, it's unfortunate because people that are union people that really like their union health care plans people that just like private insurance plans, you know, some people do direct primary care. Um, they're going to, they, they're going to force you into a government health care plan, which really is not constitutional. And they found that it wasn't constitutional when Obamacare, they got shot down recently in the Supreme court because they were penalizing people that just didn't have health care at all. And the penalty would be about as much as having Obamacare. So they would make you pretty much buy into Obamacare. And then people for a long time, what they would do is they would not go to the doctor they had any issues they would not pay into obamacare and then if something really substantial came up they would go to the doctor and then then at that point they can enroll in obamacare so you had somebody that wasn't paying into the system this entire time for years and then they go and they jack up a huge bill that gets paid somehow by the taxpayer or by really by private insurance companies other people this is why it's unconstitutional because you can make the claim you can make the claim at least when you live in your town if you call the cops, because your property taxes, if you call the cops, you are getting something in return for your tax money. Like, no matter what, the cops are going to at least respond to you when you call. There's going to be something given to There's There's garbage pickup on every Wednesday. You are getting something in return for your tax dollars. It's almost uh, similar to the argument taxation without representation. It's like getting taxed and then you getting nothing in return. 
that's why Obamacare actually is considered unconstitutional, because if you have people that are paying into these private insurance programs, you're secretly paying for Obamacare uh, recipients, and you're getting nothing for it at all. Like, you're getting zero. At least the welfare program or the uh, Social Security program or the Medicare-Medicaid program, in the case if you ever get into a situation you can still, uh, you end up using that eventually. Like Social Security, you'll eventually use, you'll eventually be able to use that because you've been paying into it this entire time, hopefully. Uh, We'll see what ends up happening with that. But the Obamacare system, the reason it's screwed up and it's unconstitutional is because you're paying for, you're paying and you're getting zero out of it. You're getting nothing out of it and somebody else is pretty much gaining on you paying something, paying into something. And that's why you can't really make an argument for it being constitutional. Now, that's why regular taxation, they can consider it, you know, constitutional property taxation. I mean, the way that they property tax you in New Jersey, to me, it's unconstitutional just because it's so outrageous and so high. But you can't make that argument for Obamacare because you're paying for somebody else's health care through your own private insurance uh, plan. And you're receiving zero by it. You're just paying for somebody else, which, you know, in essence, makes it unconstitutional. Because there's nothing in the Constitution that backs up you paying for somebody else's stuff. At the end of the day, that's your property. But I digress. And uh, so that, that'll that'll end this paper here. This is going to be Federalist number 8. We're going to get on to 9 on Friday. So these are starting to kick up. Uh, this one here is a pretty good one, I thought. 8, but 9 is even bigger. And then 10 after that's one of the most renowned ones. So please like, share, subscribe. Uh, drop the mic. If you if you like the content, let people know, and uh, that's it. I will see everybody on Friday.